Thanks, Prentice, and welcome everyone to Bethany as we worship uniquely this week online, perhaps not so unique in the sense that we've been meeting often online, but as we are regathering, we've chosen today being the 4th of July, a holiday weekend to encourage you to meet with family and friends, but also to take time to worship. And we're taking time out of our existing series around the fruit of the Spirit uh, today to particularly talk about freedom, since it seems appropriate to do so this weekend. So please join me in prayer. Then we'll look at some text together. Father, thank you so much that wherever we are today, uh, we are enjoying in many, many unique ways freedoms unfathomed by many, many previous generations of humanity. And we know with freedom comes great responsibility, Father. And we know as well that many are not free in many ways. And we know that we ourselves are not free. So would you speak to us today regarding your heart around the theme of freedom, equipping us to be people knowing freedom and advocating for freedom. We pray this in the name of Christ, who is our source of freedom, as we've just heard read. Amen. I read this week a beautiful article by Richard Hughes. He teaches at Pepperdine University. And the article was entitled, Remembering Amos, Where Evangelicals Lost Their Way. He's a Bible professor. And so he said that when he teaches uh, the prophets, the minor prophets in the Old Testament, he asks his students uh, if they know what the book of Amos is about. It's a question he asks in the, kind of the opening uh, of his class. And he says that almost 100% of the students say that not only do they not know what the book of Amos is about, but they've never read the book of Amos. Uh, many times he gets an answer like this. Hey, I come from a Christian church. We teach the New Testament. And so there's this kind of disregard for some things in the Old Testament. And then he goes on to posit that this is one of the big problems in evangelical communities that has caused us to lose our way. We don't understand what God has to say about freedom in a holistic fashion. Uh, so we're missing sometimes this uh, bent that Amos articulates toward justice. And yet on the other hand, there are communities that stress justice to such an extent that it becomes almost embarrassing to them to talk about the need to be born again or ask the question, do you know Jesus or is Jesus your savior? And, and this kind of polarity and this dichotomy and this division between those advocating for kind of systemic social, physical freedom, and those calling for spiritual freedom, this division is destroying evangelical Christianity in North America, causing us to lose our testimonies. Both parties think they are pursuing the true freedom. Both parties think that the other party is in error. And there are, it appears, from the outside, two different freedom roads under the banner of Christianity. The, the road of social freedom that addresses systemic issues within our culture and the road of personal spiritual uh, freedom, which addresses our own uh, personal transformation. But the reality check when we look at the scriptures is this, there aren't two roads, there's only one road. And in John 8, verse 34, Jesus says it this way, uh, you will know the truth, the truth will make you free. And then this, if the son shall make you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, you'll be free Completely, completely. And it's this holistic freedom that I'd like to spend a few minutes talking about today as we celebrate in some generic way freedom this weekend. And as many of us bring nationalistic notions to freedom and other notions to freedom, I'd like to set all those aside and just ask the question on this 4th of July, 
What does God have to say about freedom? And when we ask that question, we see this, that the free indeed of which Jesus speaks in John 8, 34, John 8, 36, that freedom requires two freedom themes and a project. And I want to look at those three things together, two freedom themes, physical freedom and spiritual freedom and a project. And the project is us embarking upon the pursuit of freedom. So I need to have a vision for uh, physical freedom and spiritual freedom, and not just a vision, but I need to be taking steps to experience both of those things in my life and my culture. That's what we see in our time together. So we begin with this, if we're we're thinking of that as an ecosystem, or if you prefer like three legs on a stool, uh, uh, physical freedom, spiritual freedom, and uh, uh, a pursuit of freedom. If you think of those three things, we begin here. Freedom in the Bible is physical, not just spiritual, physical. Very important we see this. When Jesus stood up and read from Isaiah what we heard read out of Luke chapter 4, the things that Jesus said are very poignant, right? He says here, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. I'm anointed to proclaim the gospel to the poor. Send me to proclaim release of the captives, recovery of sight of the blind, and then listen to this, to set free those who are oppressed. Now, you, you always have to ask the question when you're studying your Bible, like, how would the original hearers have heard that? And I want you to know that when Isaiah wrote those words, the problem in the time was that there were people experiencing literal physical oppression. It was financial at times. We'll learn that in Isaiah 58. It was, it was a domination model of colonization and slavery. We see that in Isaiah. We see that in the book of Amos. But what people were experiencing in the book of Isaiah that Isaiah the prophet addressed was not the need to know Jesus as your personal savior. Isaiah was addressing physical oppression and saying the spirit like portraying the coming of the Messiah, the spirit, is the, Lord of, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, what Jesus read in Luke 4, because I am anointed to give literal sight to literal blind eyes, which Jesus did, to set literal captives free, and to set free those who are oppressed, and to preach the good news to the poor, both the spiritually poor and the physically poor, as we'll see. So, so I want you to see here that when you see freedom in the Bible, there's a risk in some of our communities of simply spiritualizing freedom and saying, oh yeah, here's the deal. Jesus set me free from my sin. I was greedy, now I'm generous. I drank too much, now I only have a glass of wine at dinner. I, I, I had this sexual sin, now I don't do porn anymore. Thanks be to God, I'm free. Well, that is freedom, and we'll talk about it in a moment, but that's not the only freedom. There's a a physical freedom that is addressed in the Bible. And of course, if you go further back from Isaiah, you see the story of the Exodus. And the story of the Exodus, if it is nothing else, is a story of people literally delivered from literal oppression and slavery and set literally free as they're uh, guided into a given, a new land where they will set themselves up to be in God's intent, a place of blessing for the entire world. And then we also see that the trajectory of the entire Bible 
is a movement away from slavery, which was kind of the default, de facto model among Mesopotamian cultures. The entire trajectory of the Bible is a movement away from slavery toward freedom. So that even in the Old Testament, when slavery is quote-unquote uh, sanctioned by God, it's a different kind of slavery. It's six years and then slaves are set free. Slaves have rights. Uh, uh, quote-unquote owners are admonished uh, to, to justice and compassion for their slaves. Is it perfect? No, but it's on a trajectory. It's a cut above culture. And as culture evolves, here's God's desire that the church would evolve too so that there's more and more freedom because by the time we get to the New Testament and the book of Philemon is written, Paul writes to a slave owner. He says, listen, you want to do the right thing? Set him free. There's a trajectory. Why? Because God cares about freedom, not just spiritual freedom, physical freedom from beginning to end. The trajectory is there. From beginning, remember the Tower of Babel? The story of the Tower of Babel is, among other things, a polemic against empire building. Here's a group of people that say, hey, you know what? We're going to make a nation for ourselves. And God's desire was that uh, after the ark and Noah, people would scatter and form many different people groups, many tribes, many nations. And, and instead, humanity, we, we kind of have this lust for you know, power and control and the strong dominate the weak. So all the way back at the beginning, when God intervenes at the Tower of Babel, God is saying, no, that's not my plan. And if you go all the way to the end of the story, you can look at the end of the story in Revelation if you want, but also Isaiah is a beautiful picture of what the kingdom of God looks like in its fullest expression. Listen to this. When God reigns on this planet, listen, they will, this is what we're told. People will build houses and inhabit them, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will never build and another inhabit. Never plant and another eat. Is that powerful? <laughs> like this means I will, be in a, I will be empowered by God, the God of justice, to enjoy fully the fruits of my labor. I'll plant and I'll eat it. I'll build and I'll live in it. Does that sound like slavery? No. It sounds like freedom. And so God is saying something here, really, really important. And I would articulate here at this moment, the church in the West has too often been silent regarding systemic oppression and, and the value of physical freedom. And the Bible is not silent about these things. Isaiah 58, for example, says, hey, don't fast and pray if you're not going to pay your workers a living wage. Amos 5 says, don't sing, don't do Bible study if you're not going to work for justice and care for the widow and the orphan and the immigrant. And in the New Testament, in James 2, verses 15 and 16, we read this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and someone says to them, go in peace, be warm, be full, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is, it's no good. It's worse than no good. It's a terrible testimony of we who claim to love and follow Christ have no regard for the physical condition and physical oppression and physical injustice of anyone made in the image of God. It should break our hearts. The human longing for freedom from oppression 
is put in our hearts by God. And it's that human longing for freedom from oppression that created the Underground Railroad and the March on Selma and, and advocates for economic justice in Central America and the Reconciliation Project in Rwanda. So don't reduce our notions of freedom to only the spiritual realm. I would just say that um, most of my childhood and into my early years of ministry, that was exactly my notion of freedom right there, nothing more. And then I happened to be en route to India teaching for the purpose of teaching and had an overnight in Bangkok and uh, my cab driver talked me into a, a cheaper motel than the one I had chosen. The, the reputable motel, he talked me into a cheaper one. I ended up staying on the outskirts of Bangkok, or I was taken to the outskirts of Bangkok to a place called, a hotel called the Nice Palace. And uh, the, I go in, I put down my credit card, $20 for the room. I, I pay my $20 and then the a bellhop guy picks up my backpack. We go upstairs, we go down the hall, he opens the door, the room is tiny, it's hot, it's humid. It stinks, and uh, he shows me around, shows me where the bathroom is, the shower is, holds out his hand for a tip, and then he says, when do you want the girl? And I said, I didn't know that a girl came with a room. What are you talking about? He said, yeah, it's, it's part of the deal. When do you want the girl? I said, I'm, I pull out my wallet, you know, at the time, not my phone, but my wallet. Look, I got a wife, three kids, happily married. Yeah, wonderful. When do you want the, room? When do you want the, uh, when do you want the girl? I said, I want the girl. Don't bring a girl in here. He, and then he got mad at me. He says, it's still 20 bucks, man. Even without the girl, still 20 bucks. And he stormed out angry. And I, was, I felt like I was going to throw up. And I didn't stay there. I was so sick to my stomach, picturing what's going on all around me. And I walk out the hall and I see a girl dressed for work, 14, <laughs> got a cab, went back to the airport, slept in the airport, wept. Begin a little research. I find out she'll probably sleep with 20 men that night. She won't make a penny. She's probably sold into slavery because her parents, in spite of the small farm that they maybe own, uh, can't afford to feed all their children. Now, let me just ask you a question. When Jesus said, I've come to set the captive free, do you think he had her in mind? Or only the guy sitting in the second row who smokes too much? Like, what do you think? I mean, that single experience sent me on a trajectory to understanding that when Isaiah and Jesus and Amos and God say, I've come to set the captive free, he's not just talking about spiritual sin, he's talking about systemic injustice, racism, um, oppression, colonialism, all that marks our culture. Yeah, that's freedom. And the good news is Christ came to set... That level of captivity free, absolutely. But there's an equally important error to avoid. I want to make sure you hear me. Don't limit your notions of freedom to the physical realm. That's just as damning. Because the second truth is this, freedom is spiritual. One author says this because he understands that Exodus is not only a polemic against literal slavery, but it's a picture 
of our own personal inward transformation. And this is what he writes. All of us have to turn to God and let ourselves be led on this faith journey. We must be willing to experience the exodus in our own lives, allowing God to take us from captivity to freedom, from Egypt to Canaan, not knowing fully how to cross the huge desert between the two. Well, what does that mean? From captivity to freedom. Well, well we should all know that from the captivity of materialism, the captivity of greed, the captivity of lust and shame and body image issues and eating disorders and all that oppresses us, that leads us to hate ourselves. God is saying this, man, I want to set you free. Hebrews 2 says, there's a slavery that comes from the fear of death that grips us. And that's a form of, of slavery from which we need to be freed. Kind of this notion, hey, you only live once, so, you know, carpe diem, seize the day, accumulate experiences. Uh, No. You can be free from, like, that comparison trap that causes you to look at your social media feed and go, wow, I'm not living much of a life because the life that you're living Ideally, it's the life that God has given you and you're filled with gratitude for what a rich, amazing life it is. But I'm getting ahead of myself. There's another form of slavery. It's, it's articulated in 1 Corinthians 6 and Philippians uh, chapter uh, 3 where Paul says, hey, all of us are at risk of being slaves to our appetites. And by that, uh, he's addressing food and drink and sexual satisfaction Those three things come to mind as things that easily enslave us. But there's more. By being a a slave to our appetites, we can be enslaved to possessions or a certain lifestyle that includes creature comforts and travel and eating out. And we become enslaved to these things thinking that our life can't have meaning unless we attain to a certain level. Whereas Paul says this in 1 Timothy 6, look, if you have food and clothing, with this you can be content. And contentment with what you have, I'm telling you, is freedom. Because then you realize that satisfaction is not just around the corner with the next experience or the next possession or the next meal. And when that happens the peace and joy that comes with freedom will be yours. One person says it this way. Many people spend their lives working at jobs they hate in order to pay for things that they don't need so that they can impress people they don't like. And all of this becomes its own form of slavery. Leo Tolstoy wrote a powerful short story over 100 years ago entitled How much land does a man need where this guy is offered the opportunity to be given a plot of land in uh, Russia and all he has to do is put a stake down where he starts and as far as he goes, he can put a stake at every corner and he gets to start when the sun goes up and he just has to make it to the last stake before the sun goes down. And you see him wide-eyed, he takes off and he wa- but the, here's the problem. He wants more and more and more, and he gets too far away. And he sees that the sun is setting, and in his anxiety to run and reach uh, the end, something happens. I won't tell you. Read the short story. But it's not a happy ending. And Tolstoy is making a point. Like, when will we be satisfied? Well, here's the thing. We can, we can be free from our appetites. 
This is part of the value of the wilderness ministry that John Wayne spoke of earlier in the part of the ancient paths ministry as well. Put everything you need on your back, sleep under a tarp, and then you discover joy is not contingent on having the latest phone and the best shoes and a Netflix and Hulu and HBO and stars with a Z subscription. Like you don't need all that stuff, right? You're free because sitting with people you love and enjoying food that you grew in your backyard or that uh, you bought that's simple is enough. Many of us, though, I will say this, in this very complex and difficult world, when we face trouble, uh, we find ways of believing that the next acquisition will soothe our souls, called self-medicating. And if we're self-medicating, we're not free. And finally, there's a slavery to the law that's addressed in Galatians 5. This passage says that particularly for people who grew up in religious environments, there's a danger of trying to live our lives for God's approval by trying to obey the law. Those who approach the Bible as a rule book believe that they can find what they should do and just do it if they just study more and have enough discipline to do the right thing, and that, that's the path to a good life. That's a deeply flawed way of thinking, friends, for a couple of reasons. First of all, the Bible is not a rule book. The Bible is a pointer to relationship with the Creator. In fact, in Proverbs 26.4, it says this, don't answer a fool according to his folly. And in Proverbs 26.5, the Bible says this, answer a fool according to his folly. And so then I'm like this, okay, I pull up my social media feed and I read a fool pontificating and I... And then Proverbs 26, 4 and 5 begin to war in my brain. Answer a fool according to his folly that he deserves. And then the other one, don't answer, delete, answer, type, don't answer, delete. What do I need, an answer? No, I need wisdom in relationship with Jesus. Because there's a time to answer and a time to shut up. <laughs> and there's a time to confront and a time to absorb. And here's the thing, you don't know what time it is. Why? Because you're not Jesus, but you have Jesus. And if you have Jesus, right? If you have the son, the son will make you free, free from the law, free from possessions, free from self-medicating, free from appetites, free from the fear of death, free. So there's this physical freedom that addresses systemic and physical issues there's this spiritual freedom that addresses our inward appetites and our greed and fear and shame and lust and self-medicating addictive behavior. And the third truth then is this. If those two freedoms are available to all of us in the room, freedom is a project. Because the end of the story is clear. Like when you read Isaiah 65, here's where history's heading. No longer will one plant and another eat. John 6.31 is clear. If the sun will make you free, you will be what? Free indeed. So I have to pursue freedom internally and externally. How does that happen? Well, it begins by me overcoming my own slavery to sin. 
Paul says in Romans 8 that my, like my flesh, my, my nature apart from God, it will, it, it's, it's driven, attracted to self-destructive enslaving behavior. That's what Romans 8 says. It says that we're slaves to sin. And the way forward out of that slavery is to say yes to my identity in Christ. And that identity invites me to a calling that kind of, for me, changes my perspective and makes that slavery unappealing. In other words, let me be very practical here. All of us in the room, I think, have ways of self-medicating at times when we're discouraged, depressed, lonely, frustrated. We have ways of dealing with it that aren't healthy. It could be your addiction to social media. It could be your addiction to pornography. It could be too much alcohol. It could be too much food. It could even be too much exercise. So we've got ways of coping that become slavery. Like we need that fix, right? I'm going to suggest to you that your path to freedom is not not trying to stamp a great big no on your self-medicating behavior. First, you need the yes of your identity in Christ. God is calling you to abundance. God God is calling you to make a difference in the world. God is calling you to joy and freedom and generosity and justice and mercy and hospitality and light and life. That's the big yes. And that yes is better than just sitting and eating a half gallon of ice cream. It just is. So if I can embrace the yes, the no becomes easier to say. Does this make sense? I embrace the yes and it frees me from the no. And this is what I think Jesus means when he says, if the Son will make you free, you'll be free indeed. I'm calling you to a better, higher, richer, fuller life. Say yes to me, and what was once attractive will, over time, no longer be attractive. That's my internal freedom. But it cannot stop there. It continues by us then, as we gain our own freedom, to take the capacity that God has now given us to make a difference in the world, and we go out and make a difference in the world. How do we do that? Well, just off the top of my head, within Bethany, there are people addressing homelessness. There are people working as public defenders. We have our MRJ, our Ministry of Races, uh, Race, Racial and Justice, uh, Justice and Reconcil- Racial Justice and Reconciliation. People mentoring teens, people tutoring children, people doing foster care, camp attitude for uh, people with uh, special. Uh, needs, ministry partners addressing poverty, public health, AIDS, and a dozen other issues in both Costa Rica and Rwanda, and others just raising good kids. Like people are addressing systemic oppression by doing their thing, building their part of God's beautiful mosaic that is contributing to saying by our life together, the kingdom of God is among us. So if I'm addressing personal freedom without addressing systemic freedom, it's a false gospel. If I'm addressing systemic freedom without addressing my need for Jesus to set me free in my own heart, it's a false gospel. Um, On Christmas Eve, my wife wife and I were skiing at 9 o'clock in the morning up where we live, and she's... uh, gets in line and had said to me on the way down, things feel a little wonky, you know, and then she fell over in line. 
And then she said, you know, I'll just, I'll catch the next chair up. And I went up and I skied down and then she wasn't around and I called her. She said, I'm in the car. I just feel terrible. Can you, we got to go home. So I drove her home and she proceeded to throw up six times in the next three hours. And I took her to the emergency room and that's where we spent our Christmas Eve. And within a week, she was diagnosed with something called vestibular neuritis. And it's a virus that attacks the pathway between your inner ear and your brain. And so here's what I learned about balance. Your, your balance comes from something going on in your inner ear and your left ear and your right ear each get different messages and they send the messages to your brain, which then synthesizes the messages. And that's how you're able to ski or uh, surf or climb or skateboard or walk without running to the wall. And Donna literally tried to walk to the bedroom, walked into the wall because she'd lost her balance. And the therapist said, yeah, that pathway is gone. So now you're only getting one message. And then these words apply. With only one message, you can't do much. Can I just say that to us, Bethany? With only a message of racial justice, we can't do much because Christ is the source of all freedom, both sides. But with only a message of interpersonal transformation, you can't do much because the end of the story is not me set free, it's the whole world set free. And I'm participating in that story. And so I need my left ear and my right ear. I need racial justice and personal transformation. I need to address that which is systemic and that uh, which is a hard matter. I need to address my self-medicating behavior and I need to care about homelessness and the systemic problems that cause it. This is the gospel. Not this, not this, this. And only there will we be free. But there, if the sun will make you free, free indeed. Let's pray. Father, uh, would you help us in this? Churches divide right here so that there's a left ear wandering and a right ear wandering, both stumbling. We need each other, but we need you. And we express our desire to be a community that is deeply rooted in Christ and allowing that rootedness to not only eventuate in personal freedom, but in shining his light on the issues of systemic injustice in our world. Guide us there, we pray, Christ, in Jesus' name. Amen.